I am very grateful to be up here. Um, I know Andrew's probably watching on the YouTube right now. Um, I know uh, Andrew asked me over a month ago to preach um, because he knew that he was going to be moving. And um, Kyle prayed that he'd be having rest right now. He is moving. <laughs> he is moving his house. And I remember two years ago, my wife and I, we moved um, within Jacksonville. I had to take off time from work. Um, just the boxes and the moving and coordinating efforts. It's not fun. It's exhausting. And Andrew, he said this to me whenever he was asking me to preach. He said, Ben, I know I probably could squeak out a sermon. I probably could make time to find in the text something to preach, show up Sunday morning, preach, and then get back to moving. But he, he said he didn't want to do that. He wants a sermon, to, every sermon to be up here to be of, of high quality. And so I really thank him for that, um, for how he guards the pulpit. Um, he went over lots of rules and expectations um, for the pulpit. Um, he trusts me. He, he does trust me a lot, and he made that very clear. Um, but, you know, going over certain topics and um, going over certain ideas of what I could preach this morning, he went over that. He, he was very guarded of um, who he chooses to preach up here. So I know that um, I want to say thank you, Pastor Andrew, for guarding this church in that way. Thank you for taking this seriously. And I hope, I pray that Jesus works through me today to deliver a great sermon for y'all. So um, it won't be because of me. It'll be because of God's grace. Um, it has been two years since I preached up here. I do feel a little bit out of practice, you know, a little, little rust in the joints. But um, I think I, I had a sermon topic up until last week, what I wanted to do. And then, much to Andrew's chagrin, because I, I coordinated with him to death over what I was going to preach on, and I'm, I'm changing it on him, I felt led to change the topic because what we went over this morning in Sunday school, I thought was such a great lesson. I wanted to build upon that. I think there's a lot to what it means to be living by faith. We're, we're going over a very obscure book today, the book of Habakkuk. It's going to take you a couple minutes to find that in your table of contents and then find that in the Bible if you're not familiar with it. So I'm giving you a warning now. We're going to be in the book of Habakkuk, and then we're going to flip over to the book of Romans. So if you're a Bible flipper person, make sure you put a bookmark in the book of Romans so that way I'm going to go quick. I have a lot to say. There is a lot to do this morning. And so um, people tell me whenever I preach, I speak quickly and I speak a little deeply than um, what's customary, not deeper than Andrew, but just in customary in general. And so that's just how I am as a preacher. That's what, how I enjoy keeping the room engaged. And so I hope that you're awake this morning. Are you awake? Are you ready to learn the Bible? All right, because we have a very fun book to read. It's one of my more favorite books of the Minor Prophets. It's not the most favorite, but it is the book of Habakkuk. And talking about today what a righteous faith is. Because Habakkuk had a very, very tough time dealing with the sovereignty of God and understanding what it means to live by faith, that God had to chastise him of what it means to live by faith. But kind of picking back off the the Sunday school lesson this morning of Abraham, because it does kind of tie into that. Um, the story of Abraham is an amazing story. And the, the verse that caught my eye that made me change my entire sermon this week was in Genesis 15, verse 6, when, God, when the Bible says, and Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so at that point, we see Abraham going through a lot of changes. Um, I have a map here showing the journey that Abraham took, that what we studied this morning. It's kind of difficult to read. It's, it's really the best I could do, given my stuff here. But you can see towards the Persian Gulf, that red line that originates, that goes up through Saudi Arabia, up to the northern area of the Palestine area, and then it trends down towards Egypt. 
That's the path that Abraham took whenever God called him out of the city of Ur. So we know that Abraham, he was a very well-off person in the city that he was in. Ur is a very prosperous city. It's one of the cities that we know started building um, those like tall pyramid structures. They had a very well-defined religious structure in their culture. We presume that Abraham probably was giving into that. He was not a follower of God at the time. And he was also very wealthy because whenever he leaves, he takes all of his sheep and his oxen and his large family with him, something only a rich man could do. And so God comes to Abraham. I know you studied this this morning. This is going to be very quick. He comes to Abraham and he says, hey, pack up your things. Go to a land that I will show you. And I know that was probably focused on in your Sunday school lesson, right? Because God didn't say, leave Ur. I'm taking you to a better place. He didn't say that. He said, I'm taking you to a place that I will show you. And whenever I was in um, Bible school, uh, one of my Bible teachers, they said that geography is the fifth gospel, equivalent of the fifth gospel. If you understand the geography and the terrain of the world, of the Bible world, then you can really see these stories start to come alive. Because a lot of the Old Testament geography and cultures, are, they're gone now. Um, but if you can look up here, he is starting on the eastern side of Saudi Arabia. And then he is going to trek northwest towards Palestine, what is in between Ur and Northwest Palestine? Can you take a guess? Saudi Arabia? Desert, right? Abram was called out of Ur, presumably a life of prosperity. God said, didn't say where he was going. He said, to a land that I will show you. And the very first steps that Abram takes is into the desert. And he takes his whole family with him. Not only his immediate family, but his nephews and his family. And so they start walking through this line about 600 miles. They trek along the river. They have their oxen. They have to keep the oxen alive. Um, you know, they have the Euphrates River there to kind of use as a resource as they trek through. But eventually he gets to the northern tip of Haran, that city at the very tip there. And then he starts trekking south. And that's where God starts showing him the promised land. And there where our story, what we studied this morning, where God comes to Abraham and he says, hey, you're gonna be a father of many nations. He starts the Abrahamic covenant right there with him and he says that you're going to have a child. The problem Abraham had was that he was older. He had been married to Sarah for presumably about 40 years at this point and they hadn't had a child yet. And so he looked, he heard God he looks at Sarah and his circumstances, and even though it seemed impossible, he still had faith. And that's where chapter 15, verse six comes in. He believed God, he had faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so we see these two major acts of faith, of this journey that he took, believing God that he would get a child, and then he's gonna have a third act of faith, right? When Isaac is eventually born, what does God tell him to do? Kill him. And what does Abram do? He marches Isaac up that mountain and, get, and getting ready to kill him. He had faith that whatever God was doing, he was sovereign. And we see Abraham modeled after faith. Now what's great about Abraham, why he's such a great person to study, is that he is not a hero of the faith in the sense that he was a good person. He was always dutifully obedient. He had some really harsh things that he did that were sinful, right? He had a child with another woman, 
He would lie about his relationship with his wife and who she was. He did things that were on, that would be offensive even to our modern day. Abraham, his righteousness had nothing to do with his disobedience or his obedience, had everything to do with his faith. And that's where, that's why I like the book of Habakkuk. It's another story, and at the end, I'm going to tie them together. So it's not going to be, it seems chaotic at first, but it'll come together. I'm sorry, I'm not a pro at this thing yet. But in the world of Habakkuk, we are many, many years later after Abraham. This is where the nation of Israel has been established. King David and King Solomon have come and gone. And now after Solomon's death, the kingdom has been divided because Solomon's son, who was gonna take over the king, he promises to be a harsh king. And so because the northern half of Israel, they didn't want to have Solomon's son as king, they decide to split off. The northern part is called Israel. The southern part that keeps Solomon's son is called Judah. They take the name, the name after the tribe Judah. And so now they are two divided kingdoms that are now going forth. And when we read through Kings and Chronicles, it catalogs those different directions that the nation of Israel takes with those two divided kingdoms. Now, it's not gonna stay this way very long with these two divided kingdoms. Eventually other empires are going to start invading and taking over the known world. Empire building starts. Assyria comes, and around 722 BC, it takes over and, and completely obliterates the northern kingdom of Israel. All that's left after Assyria is done with it is the nation of Judah. They were going to take over Judah, but there's a problem. To the south of Judah is the nation of Egypt, and Egypt is a very powerful nation. Judah's weak. It's nothing. But Egypt is very powerful, and Assyria knows if they trek south into Judah, Egypt will attack. So what do they do? They start focusing elsewhere. They start going west, all right? So they leave Judah as a buffer for now. Assyria has other issues besides Egypt. They have a nation called Babylon. Babylon starts attacking Assyria from the east, and eventually it takes over all of Assyria. And then Babylon, it start, it's at the door ready to attack Judah. So you have Habakkuk now being born. And he is aware of all of this history that's unfolded of all these empires that are starting to take over pretty much the Levant area of, of this Palestinian area. And so now Israel, they're seeing their identity being completely threatened. It's existential for them. Okay, so Habakkuk, he is looking at the Egyptian empire to the south. They are not friendly to the, to the way of the Judeans. He sees Assyria, who is a very nasty empire-building state. They are ruthless and merciless. They kill their prisoners, and they're the people that you're kind of scared to fight. It's like a medium-sized dog. Even, if, even though you could beat it, you know you're going to get hurt. Every Assyrian soldier was like that. They are crazy brawlers. They know how to fight, and even if you know you could beat them, you know you're going to be hurt when you're over, so you'd rather not fight them at all. The Babylonians empire, they are calculated. They figure out trajectories and how to do catapults and siege weapons. And um, they are a very, uh, they're a menace to be dealt with. So Habakkuk sees these three empires bordering all around Judah. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and all three want to take over his nation. During the time period of Habakkuk, um, Egypt decides to march north through their city or through their country. King Josiah goes out and meets the Pharaoh in the battlefield whenever he marches forward and he's killed. And then Egypt, because they have now taken over Judah, they have placed a puppet king 
in charge of all of Judah, Jehoiachin. So now Habakkuk sees even more deterioration within his city. A puppet king from Egypt is ruling over the final, what he thinks is the stronghold for the Lord. The the father of many nations that Abraham started, it has now been reduced to this small little magenta area that's now being controlled by a foreign power and is doomed to be taken over by other foreign powers. Habakkuk is scared, and this king Jehoiachin, he is not following the ways of the Lord, and he is bringing all sorts of corruption, worship of false deities, and now um, he is leading the entire country astray. Habakkuk sees things as very, very bleak, and he doesn't know where to go from here. Go to Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So Habakkuk's going to start speaking. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and will you not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth unperverted. Goes forth perverted. Now, let me ask you this. Have you ever spoken to God that way? Have you ever said to God, why are you idle? These bad things are happening, God. You aren't doing anything. Habakkuk is calling God to task here very presumptuously. And whenever we read this, I want you to put yourself in Habakkuk's position, both in his time period and in your current state of how do you relate to God. I can't tell you for sure if God appreciates the way that Habakkuk is speaking to him, but God does respond to him and he does minister to Habakkuk in the way that he's speaking to him right now. So I find that very interesting. God responds in verse five. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Another word for the Babylonians. I am raising up the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. So Habakkuk is praying to God, God, why are you idle? Why are these bad things happening within Judah? Why don't you do something to judge these people that are in Judah? What's God's response? Hey man, I'm gonna raise up the Babylonians and they're gonna invade, they're gonna wipe everything away. That's my judgment. And Habakkuk is like, whoa, 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 whoa. okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I asked. 
And so I love like this turning point for Habakkuk. And for us as the reader, this is actually supposed to be somewhat comical, the way that it's kind of written through, because Habakkuk, he's asking for God's judgment. God says, yes, I'm bringing judgment, and it's a lot worse than what you were probably wanting it. And Habakkuk's now changing his tune. And he's like, I I don't want that. Never mind. I I don't want that God. Now he is accusing, he's going to accuse God of being even worse than idle, but permissive towards the sinfulness that's going on in the land. So uh, go, to verse, uh, go to verse 12. This is where Habakkuk challenges God again. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Isn't that funny, that wording that Habakkuk uses? He says, why are you using the Babylonians to swallow up people more righteous than, than they are? And we, Habakkuk's, in chapter, chapter, in chapter one, he has already said the sinfulness of his own people led by a foreign government. But he says, verse 14, you make mankind like the fish of the sea. Oh, so for verse 14 through 17, Habakkuk's gonna go on to keep describing who these Babylonians are. And I find that very funny and humorous because God's already defined the Babylonians for him. And the last little bit of verses seven through 11, where God says like, yes, they pile up earth and they take it and they dispose of people. And Habakkuk's still saying, God, God, you don't understand. These people are really, really bad. This judgment is not fair. This should not be the way that judgment should prevail. So let me ask you, Have you ever pled to God for something, for God to act, and then the answer that you get back is not what you were expecting, and it's worse than what you would want? That is God being in character from the times of old, even through the nation of Israel. He still acts that way today. God answers prayers, but sometimes he answers them in a way that we are not we don't approve of, but there is still a sovereignty to behold here. And God's gonna minister to this. Habakkuk's, he's scared. He doesn't wanna go through and see Judah take over by Babylon. He wants to see the Abrahamic promise carry on, right? In chapter two, um, it's, it's funny how the verses are split up here, the chapters. He's still speaking in verse one of chapter two. Because after Habakkuk says these things to God, he says this in verse one. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And so this is like funny Bible wording for Habakkuk to say, God, I'm not happy with the answer. You're not being just. You're idle when you're not doing anything, but when you do something, it's, it's awful. I'm gonna stand right here. I'm not gonna move until you answer back to me and tell me why. What is going on? Why are you acting like this in your all sovereign goodness? Okay, again, very standoffish of how you approach God. Verse two, guess what? God answers him. And the Lord answered, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still 
the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So right now, God is actually executing grace here. He's saying, write this vision on tablets, show it to the city so they can what? They can run. God's not relenting on the fact that Babylon's gonna take over Judah and destroy it all. But he is saying, if you run, if you flee, then you can survive. So here, God is showing his grace here. Like, hey, Habakkuk, if you want these people to live, get to work. Write this on the tablets, go show it to everybody. Ask, plead people to run, okay? Then verse four, God says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And so right now, Habakkuk is challenging everything that he believes about God to God's face. And God is saying, this is going to happen, Habakkuk. He's being very real and forthright with him. So I, I love that about how God is ministering to Habakkuk here. He's not sugarcoating it. He's like, nope, it's going to happen. You can write these things on tablets. People can run. He's like, but the righteous live by faith. And it's what we saw back in Abraham's time. His faith was counted to him as righteousness. And so a lot of times we think that our relationship with God always results in better times ahead. We have the creator of the universe on our side. So obviously he's cheering for us and he wants the absolute best for us. But we can see there is lots of evidence within scripture that's not always true. He doesn't demand that we're obedient and if we're obedient, we have a great life. He simply asks us to live by faith and that's our righteousness. That should be enough with our relationship with God. And I think it's okay for us to fall into the trap of acting like Habakkuk and speaking to God that way because obviously God is gracious enough to minister to Habakkuk during that time. I think he'd be gracious for us too. I don't know if that's always the appropriate way for you to speak to God, but it's awesome that we have a God that will minister to us when we are in that spot. That he will look at us and he will speak forthrightly and accurately and say like, this is going to be rough. It is going to be hard. I can't promise you that you'll even survive. But here it is, the righteous live by faith. And so for us, the challenge for this sermon today is what does our faith look like? Because that's an intense faith, in my opinion. Habakkuk goes on in chapter three and he starts really defining who the, who the Babylonians are. And he says like, God, these people are awful and horrible and terrible. I can't believe you're making this happen. All right, go to um, Romans chapter one. Verse 16. All right, real quick. Book of Romans, written during the Roman Empire by Paul. The Roman Empire was not exactly friendly towards Christians. Paul finds himself in the same exact state that Habakkuk was in whenever he, Paul was writing this letter. He is not existing in a government culture that is warranting Christianity, okay? Paul is in every bit of danger as Habakkuk was. 
okay? Romans 1, verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, this part right here, the righteous shall live by faith, that is quoting Habakkuk chapter two, verse four. So Paul, he is defining the gospel, what the gospel is and what saving faith it needs. And he directly connects it to how Habakkuk was defined in his book. The righteous shall live by faith. The faith that we need to go into the gospel has to mimic the faith that Habakkuk had whenever he saw his world crumbling around him. Okay, there is no promise of a better future. There is no promise that if you become a Christian, things will be better. The only promise and hope that you have through Jesus is a relationship with him and eternal life with him. But in terms of here on this earth, there is no promise. God calls Christians to be prosperous and comfortable. He calls other Christians to be middle class. He calls other Christians to be poor. We don't know where we fall. But either way, our faith should mimic what Habakkuk has of living by faith even in the most direst of circumstances. Paul is equating the gospel faith to this faith. And that's why I believe it's important. If you look back and you go uh, into verse seven, uh, verse, at the end of verse 16, it says, for, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. When he says to the Jew first, Jesus came originally to minister to the Jews. Why? because they were the original partakers of the promise of God, the original children of Abraham. And that's how I'm connecting this back. Go to Romans chapter four, because Paul, he is showing us in the gospel, the faith that we need to believe. And he says to the Jew first, that's a referencing back to Abraham. And then three chapters later, Paul speaks specifically to Abraham. All right, verses one through three in chapter four. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For Abraham was justified by works. He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, flip over to verse 20, chapter four. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So the entire account of Abraham, of tracking all over the Middle East and eventually having the Abrahamic covenant and him believing that he would have a son and having that faith and being counted him as righteousness, that whole story was not for Abraham. Romans 4 says that's for us. It says that we, it was not written, he was counted as righteous for his own sake, but for ours. It's so that we can see exactly what faith we need to become Christians. I am raising three young boys at home. And 
Two of them are ages nine and age seven. I am scared to death that they, for them to have a fake faith. I am scared to share the gospel with them in a way and have them receive it to where it's not real. The reason why I'm so scared and petrified is because it happened to me. When I was 13 years old, I grew up in Tallahassee, Florida. We were at um, Thomasville Road Baptist Church. The baptismal was higher than ours. It was like probably another floor up overlooking the entire congregation. And I remember I asked my dad, dad, I want to be baptized. I want to go up to see the baptismal. I want to be really high up. And my dad said, okay, son, well, let's go talk to the pastor. And the pastor at that church, he starts asking me very leading questions. Like, well, do you believe in Jesus? All I had to do was say, yes, yes. Do you believe that Jesus is God's own son? Yes. Do you believe? And he starts asking me these questions. It was super easy to get through. And I start going, yes, yes, yes. Eventually, I didn't even know what he was talking about. And then guess what? I got my wish. I got baptized in that baptismal, three stories up. It was really quick. There were people before me and after me, so I didn't get the chance to take in the view. It was, wasn't even worth it. But I walked away from there, 13-year-old Ben Combs, thinking that I had faith. It was fake. I grew up all throughout the rest of middle school and high school thinking I was a Christian. I never went to church. My parents fell out of church whenever um, I was growing up during that time. And I didn't care that we didn't go to church because I didn't have a real faith. And so I kept going on. But if people asked me, I told them that I was a Christian. When I first moved here to go to college, um, I still thought that I was a Christian, but I realized that I needed to be more obedient to God. And so when I was 21 years old, when I was 20 years old, I started attending this church. For a year, I sat under this church thinking that I was a Christian, but then on New Year's in 2006, um, that first Sunday, I started feeling a draw to give my life to Jesus again. I had been going through some other struggles before that, but from there, I started getting very confused of why I started feeling drawn to give my life to Jesus. I thought that I had lost my faith. I had lost my salvation. And so there was a Tuesday night Bible study here that went on in the pavilion in the back, and I started going to that. It took me five months um, to get the courage to even ask someone, what is this that I was feeling? I was worried that I had lost my salvation. So I asked one of the deacons, I said, hey, that's how I let off. I said, hey, I think I've lost my salvation because every time there's an invitation given, I feel drawn to come up. The deacon looked at me, really puzzled because I had been going to this church for almost a year at this point, and he knew me. And he said, Ben, let me ask you, how do you even get salvation? And guess what? I gave him the wrong answer. I told him, well, you got to go to church. You got to be a good person. I mean, you got to behave. And I remember the look on his face, the, the absolute dis dismay that I was so close to him and he didn't realize I didn't even know the Bible. And then he starts talking to me about what the gospel is. He starts telling me about the truths of Jesus and that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. It's only through faith by grace that you're saved by surrendering to that. It's not through your works. And I remember sitting there during that time period and I said to myself, I realized something. I said, hold on, Brother Joel, you're telling me 
Let's say I don't give my life to Jesus right now. Are you saying that I would go to hell? And I remember he sat there and he stared at me and very resolutely, he said, Ben, if you're not a Christian, if you die, yes, you go to hell. And I remember it took us from 9 p.m. to 11.30 p.m. of us talking in that pavilion of me getting my pride to get lowered enough for me to realize that my faith was fake, it was very superficial, and I was not a Christian. May 2nd, 2006, I gave my life to Jesus in that pavilion in the back. And I, ever since then, I have realized that my faith was so much more real than it was when I was 13. You can have a false conversion. How do you know if you have that false conversion or not? I think it's by examining this. What's counted as righteousness? Your faith. What's interesting to me in, in Romans chapter 4, go back to verse 20. It says, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Here's my question Abram grew strong in the faith as he gave glory to God. How have you been doing as you give glory to God? Do you feel your faith growing? Because the ideal is Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. That's what we aspire to, right? Are we growing in that? That's a question that only you can answer. But it's super important that you answer it. The scariest scriptures in the Bible are in Matthew 7, when Jesus is speaking and he talks about that there are people that believe that they're Christians, that they're followers, and they even do great things like, like miracles and casting out demons and doing great works. And then they arrive at the throne of Jesus and Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. It's important that we understand how our faith, how real our faith is, because that's what's counted as righteousness. It's not your works. It's not your church attendance. It's not how well behaved you are in the eyes of people or at home whenever you're alone. It is squarely on the grace of Jesus and your faith growing day by day as you give him glory for that. That's what we see in Romans chapter one, Romans chapter four, buttressed by Habakkuk in chapter two. Paul makes very clear to connect all of those different elements to make sure he gives us an idea of what faith looks like. These types of faiths, those are the faiths that allow Peter to get out of the boat and walk with Jesus. This is the faith of Gideon who sent home 99% of his troops to only have 300 that goes in to fight the Moabites. This is the faith that we see Paul, whenever he is sitting in prison, he still gives glory to God. He still has faith that God is delivering um, his will because he knows that the gospel is being proclaimed either way. All of those things add up to a faith that is perseverant through hard times. Let me take you back to Habakkuk. Go back to Habakkuk, chapter four. We'll end there. It's my favorite part of the book. This is... This part is what sells me on Habakkuk. Because Habakkuk eventually submits to what God is trying to teach him. Chapter 3, verse 16. Habakkuk says, I hear 
and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. So a lot of people, they say that they don't believe in the Bible because it's been changed by man over the years. That is completely wrong because this story would have been edited. This would not have made it through that filter of mankind. Habakkuk doesn't, he never actually arrives in the book of being a resolute, steadfast soldier of God, ready to take on the troubles of the Babylonians. What does he say? He trembles, his lips quiver. He uses the imagery, rottenness enters his bone. He feels like he wants to die. He still stands there because he's gonna wait for the day of the Lord because he knows that's the will of God. That's his faith being executed and his physical actions, hoping that his emotions will follow. He knows what's right. He wants to run. He still might even think that this is really unfair for God to do, but he's still standing firm. His faith is going to keep him there in that city. He is going to show, tell people to run, but he's gonna stay there presumably until the Babylonians come and probably meet his fate because that's what God has promised anyone that stays. Verse 17 to the end, he writes a poem. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Habakkuk's situation has not improved any from chapter one. It's only gotten worse since actually he talked to God. And he still has the gumption in verses 17 through 19 to write this, though there's nothing, there's no food, there's no safety, there's no hope. Still, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The reason why um, I chose this is like the culture that we are now living in. The idea, our culture is not cheering us on to be great Christians. Our culture is trying to redefine Christianity and tell us what to believe. And we probably feel like things are hopeless. I know that I have friends that are going off the deep end, worried about what tomorrow brings, I have friends that have wandered into the prepper mentality and starting to store up things because he thinks everything's going to fall. We have the, the pandemic that's raging throughout the world and people are scared of catching this virus and they're scared of what the future is going to bring both in legislation. Both sides of the political aisle are in complete unhappiness right now. You specifically might not be living in fear, but in general, both sides of the political aisle are living in fear. And that is not the faith that we are called to have. We are called to live by faith, 
even if the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and our own culture are against us, God commands us the righteous live by faith. And in the midst of that, Habakkuk says, hey, I will rejoice in the Lord, even if there is nothing for me to physically take rejoicing in. I wanna challenge us as a church today to rejoice in the Lord. No matter how you feel how this culture is going, no matter how you feel about this administration is going, the administrations will change during our lifetimes as we've seen over the past eight years. Do not take comfort in any administration. Take comfort in the rejoicing of the Lord that he is your rock. He is your salvation. And if you truly believe in your salvation, if you understand the, thank you, if you understand the gravity of your salvation, then you can rejoice. You feel it. Habakkuk had no reason to feel joy at that moment. He still felt it because solely salvation was enough. Knowing that God is present is enough. Right? The book of Job. Does, that, does anyone remember the book of Job? Job complained, or he didn't complain, I'm sorry. He had an awful time throughout the loss of his property, his wealth, his children, and his own health. And then at the very end of the book of Job, he complains, and then God shows up. His situation doesn't change, but then Job says, oh my gosh, I have seen God. He stops complaining. Just the presence of God alone was enough to turn Job around. Habakkuk, seeing God's presence in this, was enough to turn him around. We find joy and rejoicing in the sovereignty and the presence of God. And so if you want to find comfort in the days that we are living in, you're not gonna find it through the news, you're not gonna find it through anything else, not even people, it's gonna be solely through the sovereignty, that's your salvation of God. And if you start to feel like things are crumbling around you and you don't know what lies ahead, and probably for sure you think horrible things are coming, Habakkuk knew horrible things were coming. He still find, found room to rejoice in the Lord. So I want to challenge you with that. Go home with that. Read Habakkuk. I hope I've given you enough context to really dive into this book and meditate on it. I love this book. It's an obscure book for a lot of folks. So um, as you read through this book, just take, that's fun to know that you know one of the minor prophets. Um, I want to leave you with those questions. How are you doing? Are you growing in your faith? As you rejoice in the Lord, you should feel your faith growing. And then challenge to tell others. Don't keep this to yourself. People have fake faiths, fake comforts. Maybe something in our culture happens where it makes them feel like, hooray, like I remember the Texas abortion law. When that first got instituted, a lot of People that I knew were like, oh, thank goodness, something good is happening. Don't take comfort in that. Your comfort needs to be in the rejoicing of the Lord. Because that law is up to the Supreme Court. It could be struck down. It could be taken away later. We don't find comfort in good things that happen on this earth. We take comfort solely in that. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how it challenges us. Thank you, thank you. Join me in prayer, please. God, thank you so much 
for who you are as our God. We know that um, better days could not be ahead, better days could be ahead, but either way, our default is to rejoice in you. I pray this book would be real to us, help us identify with Habakkuk, and help us live a life of faith. Help it be counted to us as righteousness, and help us always be growing as we rejoice in you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.